0: This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, former chairman and CEO of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, Lorenzo Fertitta. I grew up here in Las Vegas,
1: a diehard boxing fan.
0: When we sat down with the billionaire in 2014, he talked about getting his start in station casinos, the family business his father built from
1: the ground up. It is truly one of the great kind of uh, American business success stories. Describe the incredible pressure he and brother Frank faced when they took over
0: for their dad. And this was hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, this isn't like a small company. And explain why buying the UFC proved to be one of their biggest gambles. Every single show we did, uh, we were losing money on Plus, Vertita remembers when mixed martial arts were dismissed as a joke. You said before that the stigma we inherited was almost to the point of being unable to overcome. You bring up UFC and you just get this visceral reaction like, oh my God, you're involved in that. And admits the business would be nothing without UFC president Dana White. And I truly to this day believe that it had not hooked up with Dana that it wouldn't be here today. All that and more coming up next on the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I wanted to start by taking you back to your childhood and talk a little bit about your father. I think he came over to Vegas from Galveston, Texas in the 1960s during the recession and goes from being a bellman to, I think, 1976, building his
1: own casino. How did he make that happen? You know, it it is truly one of the great kind of uh, American business success stories. You know, my dad... um, moves from Galveston, Texas, where he's already married to my mother, has to borrow money to get out here. He comes out here first so he can get a job. He's not 21 yet, so he can't work in the casino. So he starts as a bellman at the Tropicana Hotel. And then in his off time, um, starts taking classes to learn how to be a a 21 dealer and begins there. And, you know, he was really a hard worker. He was very, very um, disciplined, very hard worker. Um, And he would you know work his way up from being a dealer to a, a shift manager to a shift boss to a pit boss to all these different positions and literally probably worked at most of the casinos that were on the strip at the time he had an opportunity to invest in a a small business and he had a vision of of creating a, a casino for the people who lived and worked in las vegas which at the time everybody thought was nuts because at the time the only time people thought way well, you could be successful was if you're on the Las Vegas Strip or in downtown Las Vegas. And, and he wanted to locate the property off the strip and uh, started as 5,000 square feet and um, higher paybacks on the slots, much more friendly atmosphere, and uh, really created what is now known as the Las Vegas Locals Market, which is a, a major gaming market here in Nevada.
0: I think it was even when you're seven or eight, your brother, uh, Frank's 14 years old, you guys felt like you were very involved in the business early on and as it's growing and your opinion was you know, valued. And I think you guys used to talk business uh, you know, as a family around the dinner table when you were growing up. How do you think that helped you and your brother?
1: Well, I think it helped because for, for us, business has never been a job. It's been more of a lifestyle. You know, it's uh, because yeah, of so? Well, in the early days, you know, my dad owned his own business. He was an entrepreneur as I was growing up, and um, he would always bring it home with him. You know, we'd, we'd talk about it around the dinner table. I'd ask questions, uh, he'd ask us questions, and it was just really a family business, for lack of a better word. And it, it wasn't as a traditional family business, because obviously we couldn't work in the casino until we were 21, but, you know, certainly growing up through the years, you know, I worked in food and beverage, I worked in, you know, learned the hotel business, um, you know, learned the operational side of the business, you know, whether it be human resources or marketing or what have you. And then both me and Frank, once we turned 21, uh, we worked in the gaming departments. You know, I spent summers in the race and sports book learning how uh, the sports book works and booking games and lines and spreads and all those things. And you were coming back uh, on the weekends while you were in college to so work right. thinking- I would strategically schedule my classes so I would get out of school on a Thursday afternoon. I wouldn't have class on Friday then I wouldn't have my first class till Monday night. So I would literally get three or four days oh, to great. be able to come back home and, and work with my dad. And it was kind of a traditional every, uh, tradition every Friday night. My dad, all his key executives, my brother and myself, we'd put on a suit and tie, we'd go to the casino, uh, we'd walk the floor you know, 10, 12 times, talk to customers, interact with people. Then we'd all have dinner as a group. You know, and, and that's really how, how we learned the business. What do you think you most learned from your father growing up? Well, there's a lot of things I learned from my dad, obviously. I think, um, you know, one of the biggest things, th- there's really a couple of things, and, and really what it all comes down to is people at the end of the day. You have to surround yourself with, with extremely smart people. Never be afraid to to have people around you that are maybe smarter than you mm-hmm. or and, and, and can really add something to the table. Two, um, I watched my dad. He always valued everyone's opinion so much. I mean, he would have these, um, you know, interactive meetings, whether it be marketing or whatever it was, and he'd want to know what every single person thought, you know, and uh, it wasn't that he was looking to initially build a consensus. He truly wanted, you know, more information, and, you know, once he made a decision, obviously, that's the direction that the company would go, but, um, you know, he was just one of these guys that had the ability to, to bring the best out of people, and uh, he treated people just with an amazing amount of respect, and that's why I think people respected him.
0: By 1993, I think you and your brother were pretty much running the uh, you know, gaming business, and you guys make the decision to take the company public. Um, why decide that then, and how tough of a decision was
1: it? It was a tough decision, you know. Why, I mean, we were young, we were aggressive. And, and I think you were 24, and he was yeah, 31. I was, yeah, I was just getting time. out of uh, uh, business school in NYU. I just received my my MBA, and we were young, we were aggressive, we wanted to build a business. My dad was at a point in his career and his life where he was already established, wasn't really, you know, focused on you know doing that, and he uh, had already kind of handed us, uh, you know, the day to day operations of the business, and in a lot of ways, you know, I, I've seen before where. Many self-made guys, you know, they have a hard time letting go, um, particularly maybe to their sons or whatever, and and that causes some strife. My dad was a complete opposite. He encouraged us to get involved in the business, and almost to a point, like said, "Here's the keys," you know, and that created a whole different level of stress, you know, for somebody that's you know 25, 30 right. years so that, old. Yo, say, "Oh yeah. gosh, now I, I got to make these decisions, and we've got thousands of employees, you know, relying on on what direction we go." But um, yeah, we were. we we went forward. And this was hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, this isn't like a small company. No, it was a a big company, obviously, at the time. And, you know, me and Frank, uh, we were just, we we thought there was a tremendous opportunity, but we looked at all the different opportunities and ended up, you know, building a um, a riverboat casino in Missouri. And then, um, you know, came back here to Las Vegas, started to see that there was a uh, and uh, more opportunities in the Las Vegas locals market to really build a brand beyond just one property and expand it from there. You were, I believe, the
0: youngest member ever of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and uh, you know later on in uh, 1998, the UFC reaches out because they want to be sanctioned to right. promote fights in, in Las Vegas, and I think around then, you really kind of felt. The the need to look into this uh, sport and league uh, further, and when you were looking into it, what about it really
1: interests you? Well, the thing about it was, is you know, me like many other people, my first impression of the UFC was what I saw in 1993, you know, with Hoist Gracie and and Ken Shamrock and all these guys, where it was literally no holds barred fight. There were no time limits, there were no rules, no regular. I mean, it was kind of craziness, almost like watching a car wreck. And um, so I was aware of it was. Of television, I, was. Yeah. I guess. But yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, but it was one of those things you kind of wanted to yeah. watch, but you know, didn't know if you should be. Um, it was interesting for sure. And I, I grew up here in Las Vegas, a diehard boxing fan. I was lucky enough to be appointed to the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Through that process, I, I was um, introduced to the UFC, gained a lot of knowledge about the UFC, but it wasn't really until I met a guy by the name of John Lewis that really started to kind of mold my thoughts about what the sport of mixed martial arts was what the ufc was and it completely changed my my outlook and opinion um not that i was ever necessarily against it but it just it opened my eyes to what the sport is and he reached out to us and said hey you know you should come train jujitsu with me and i remember obviously i knew what jujitsu was from the ufc and watching the early days of hoist gracie and I told Dana, I said, "We got to do this. Let's let's check this out. It sounds pretty good." So we ended up doing a private lesson with John for about two hours following Saturday or something like that. And it just completely blew me away. It was like in the Matrix, you know, take the pill and opens your eyes. And I was I was obsessed with it. I, I wanted to really, yeah, I wanted to train every day. I was watching old jujitsu tapes that I would get, you know, on uh, of uh, the Brazilian Jitsu championships in Brazil, and I was just obsessed with it, you know, and and that was really my introduction to this this world that we now live in. And Dana,
0: at the time, was your high school buddy who you'd reconnected with. He was, uh, I guess, managing some fighters in uh, the the MMA. Um, And and fast forward to uh, 2001, you get a call from him, and he basically says he thinks the UFC's for, for sale. So talk about the conversation yeah. you had with the then UFC owner sure. and then the follow-up call you ended up having within sure. a short
1: while later. So Dana, okay. after we met John, started managing Chuck Liddell and, and Tito Ortiz. And I had nothing to do with that, but from a side, from afar, I was a fan. And I would we'd say, hey, let's go to Tito's next fight or let's go to Chuck's next fight. So we'd go to you know these fights and we'd walk in and there would be—it was nothing that what we expected. There was no energy in the crowd. I remember a fight we went to in New Orleans. It was at the University of New Orleans on their campus. And um, I don't know what I was expecting, but I expected you know to check into the hotel and say you know, hey, I'm going to the fight, and for the bellman to know what was going on, and for the people to check in. But nobody in town knew knew, knew what was going on. We walk in the arena. It's about you know, one sixteenth full, there's nobody there. I wanted to buy a program. They didn't have a program. I wanted to buy a t-shirt. You can buy a t-shirt. So I'm sitting at the fight with Dana and I'm going, you know, I don't know, either there's something really wrong with us that we, you know, want to come and watch two guys fight in the octagon, or this business just isn't being run the right way. They're not, there's 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 no momentum, there's no marketing, there's there's nothing. And and uh, it was shortly thereafter that uh, Dana called me. I was on a retreat for Station Casinos in Florida. And he was trying to get a hold of me. Finally get a hold of me, he goes, Lorenzo, I just heard that the UFC is, is uh, going to be sold, or it's for sale, or the, uh, Bob Meyerwitz is looking for an investor. And I had met Bob through the process when I met him when he, they wanted to come forward in Nevada. So I called Bob, literally cold called him, and said, hey, this is Lorenzo. He remembered who I was. And we started talking, and he told me that Um, He was getting to a point where he was tired and he felt like that. He wanted to bring on an investor. He was looking for somebody to put up a million dollars for 50% of of the company. And uh, I ended up calling back and just said, look, we'd be interested in doing the deal, but we want to buy the whole thing. Um, And then we negotiated with him for about, gosh, it couldn't have been 30, 45 days. Uh, And all of a sudden we owned a business that we knew nothing about. (laughs) We were passionate, passionate fans. And, and had a vision of where we th- thought we wanted to take this thing and, and here we are today.
0: Only decision that you and your brother have ever wanted to make that your dad was opposed to. Um, what was that conversation like with him and why did you and your brother ultimately still decide to buy it?
1: You know, it was very interesting because we had, have so much respect for my father and he's such a um, you know great business person and you know reputation meant everything to him. And he only knew of the UFC from what you'd see on the news, you know, on CNN, John McCain saying this is human cockfighting. Right. And he was a, you know, a boxing guy. Like, you know, you should only fight if you have, you know, gloves on and the round, you can only hit in the head and all this other stuff. You know, the the boxing rules. And uh, he just didn't get it. He didn't understand. And, and he summoned us down and we had lunch together and he said, look, you can't do this. This doesn't make sense. This is going to be bad for your reputation everything else. And we tried to explain to him that we we had an idea. We had a vision. We had a strategy. We wanted to uh, help, you know, make the sport, make this a real sport um, that, that people thought of as a real sport. And he, I can remember him saying, no, I really don't want you guys to do this. So me and Frank walked off to the side and basically had to make that decision and say, look, we're going to we're going to do this anyways. And uh, we ended up moving forward with it. And um, I invited my dad to come to a fight, and he sat right there at the, in the front of the octagon and uh, watched the fight, and he, he appreciated a good fight. And I think after about you know, three or four fights in, I could tell he was starting to get into it. And uh, uh, it was about maybe two or three years later, we were at an event, and uh, we looked up in the crowd, and all of a sudden there was 20,000 people deep yelling and screaming when Tito Ortiz was walking in, and he turned to me and he says, you were right, you were right. How cool was that? It was awesome. It was awesome.
0: The UFC was created in '93, and you know when it was created and when you got it, it basically no rules for the most part. Anything could go. There were fighters of you know all disciplines, and you 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 said before that um, the stigma we inherited was almost to the point of being unable to overcome. Uh, How so?
1: Well, I mean, the only thing people remembered about the UFC was the no rules days, you know, the human cockfighting comment from John McCain. It's like once you get um, that stigma, once you get, get that name associated with you, it's all anybody associated with, with the brand or with the business. So it was a tremendous uphill battle. But I can't tell you how many meetings I had or how many people I'd go and talk to and you'd bring up UFC and you'd just get this visceral reaction like, oh my God, you're involved in that and it uh, <laughs> took a long time to change.
0: And you had held, uh, a, I guess, a summit with athletic commissioners in New Jersey, which I think only helped things as well in creating, I believe, a set of uh, unified rules, right? Right. Um, and then the, the first pay-per-view fight uh, after you guys ha- had bought the UFC was a short while after 9-11. Um,
1: how well do you recall that? I literally remember it like it was yesterday. It, I thought the problem with the UFC was that it didn't have its distribution platform, meaning it wasn't on pay-per-view. Once we got back on pay-per-view, I thought, oh, all problems will be solved. Well, I couldn't have been farther from the truth because what we were was a product. We, we weren't the same product that had been successful on pay-per-view. The product that was successful on pay-per-view before was no-holds-barred fighting, that they were marketing as, you know, Somebody's, you know, who knows what's going to happen? It's, it's going to be crazy. You should watch this thing. We were back on pay per view and we were trying to market a sport. And the world wasn't ready for this to be a sport yet. They didn't appreciate what these guys were doing, they didn't look at these guys as uh, world class athletes. And the sport had evolved, yet the consumer hadn't evolved. So then we figured out that it was gonna be a long battle over the next three or four years. We had to bring the consumer along. We had to put in marketing strategies and let them know who these athletes were and what their backgrounds were and and what was actually happening in the octagon, that it was strategic, it wasn't a barroom brawl. So that's when things really started to evolve.
0: And it's interesting, your brother kind of told me the same thing in that he he thought if you guys got uh, sanctioned in Nevada and back on pay-per-view that you would pretty much immediately become profitable and th- never did you guys ever think you were going to have to be you know investing millions uh, that, that was that was the beginning of the pain <laughs> how challenging at this time was it to get corporate partners or advertisers well it was impossible
1: i mean there were no corporate sponsors do you remember any of the oh, yeah.
0: or the first big
1: advertiser pitch meetings it was kind of it felt like those meetings where they were just kind of be a nice like you know giving you their time, and it's like, okay, yeah, thanks, but there was no shot we were ever gonna land anybody. you know In fact, when we did the first season of The Ultimate Fighter, if you go back and watch that first season, it's the only time ever in the history of the UFC that the mat is completely blank. There's no sponsors on the octagon or on the mat. Why is that? Because we couldn't get any. <laughs> yeah. We couldn't get anybody to uh, associate or associate their name, much less pay money to be associated with us back in that time.
0: You guys I mean, take it to the point where you're thirty plus million dollars in the hole, um, and I think it was your brother who was you know saying to you and Dana like we got to ha- have a plan for how much farther we're going right. to you know keep bleeding right um, what, what did those conversations entail
1: you know it was it was pretty straightforward I mean you know it was a, a business that we were all passionate about, a business that we all believed in, but we had those conversations like you know what how far are we willing to go you know uh, an investment that we thought was two million has all of a sudden turned into 30 40 million dollars and there's no end in sight this could easily turn into a hundred million dollars uh, real quick because every single show we did uh, we were losing money on and uh, you know i could tell my brother was getting to the point where it was like okay this was fun but it's not that fun um and uh, we had to start making some really really hard decisions and um I actually got to the point where I called Dana and I said, "Look, you know, we're going to have to take a t- take a loss on this thing. It's time to move on. We can't keep funding this thing. It's not working." And uh, you're going to sell it. We're going to sell it. And I said, "You know, do you know anybody who do you think you know could potentially buy this thing?" And um, he said he had a, a a guy. There was a guy in the business, Dan Lambert, who was a manager of some fighters down in Florida. and He gave Dan a call and he came back to me and he said, "Look, I think I think." Dan would be willing to do the deal for, i make I can't remember the exact number, four or five million dollars, something like that. You know, we were in four, 30, 40 million. I said, well, you know what? Before you call Dan back, I wanna go home. I wanna think about this. I wanna sleep on it and I don't wanna make a, a quick rash decision on anything. And I don't know why, but I, I got up the next morning and I just said to myself, I'm not ready to tap out. I'm not ready to give in. I th- we gotta figure out a way to make this work. And I called him up and I said exactly that. I go, I'm not ready. We're going to make this work. We're going to figure it out. And uh, I just wasn't really willing to let go at that point. Tell about how uh, the
0: ultimate fighter really impacted the UFC's growth in that parking
1: lot deal that you guys made. Well, we always felt like, we knew we had a great product. We we felt like we had a product that people would love. We just needed to let them know about it, and it was difficult to build a business just being on pay-per-view, because it's such a a small window of people can see it. It was really the hardcore avid fan base. We needed a platform of free television, or cable television, to to get out there and, and tell our story. And, you know, as we went out, we pitched to every network you could imagine. I mean, we talked to NBC, ABC, CBS, MTV, uh, we talked to Spike, we talked to Fox you know, Sports, we talked to ESPN, and uh, to a T, you know, everybody said. At least you were getting in with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we get the meetings, believe me. Uh, but to a T, everybody said, you know, this A, this isn't going to work, Well, oh, we can't put this on our network, all these other things. And, and I'll be honest, you know, we were desperate. We were desperate. And um, as as I was pitching and learning more and more about the business, one of the people that I had met was a guy by the name of Craig Peligian, who was a very successful uh, reality TV producer um, who actually came to us with a reality TV call, concept called American Casino, which was uh, based on our, one of our properties that ran on Discovery. And I was, I was having a conversation with him. He floated the idea. He says, you know, there's other ways you could potentially get on TV. One is you can do what's called a barter deal where you actually pay for the production and then you keep a certain percentage of or a certain number of the commercials. Then you go out and you sell those commercials to help finance your uh, your project. That's interesting. So we said, you know what? Why don't we go to Spike TV? I mean, we'd already pitched them two or three times, and they looked at us like, "This isn't going to work. This is crazy. You know, young males don't like this." And we're like, Ah "Gosh, we think you're wrong, you know." And finally, we went to them and said, "Look, what if we did this? We came up the reality show. We have Craig Piligian, who's had a number of huge hits. He knows what he's doing. We'll give you it, give it to you. Just put it on the air, put it on the air, and give us some commercial inventory, and we'll." So we can sell a few commercials to help pay for this thing. Well, as the story goes, they agreed. They agreed to do it. Um, made sense for them, you know. Free programming. Um, we got a great time slot, which was right after WWE, um, which you know had a big audience right. that led into our show. We went out and tried to sell ads. Hence, we didn't sell one ad. Not one ad could we sell. So you know what we did? Wow. Is every piece of inventory we had, we ran commercials of the pay-per-view um, that was going to be coming at the end of the season. That's it great. was Chuck Liddell versus Randy Couture. So we put the show on the air, and um, boom. From the first first episode, it was just a m- huge, over a million viewers, which for the network at the time was, was a big success. Right. And then it started to build, and it started to build. Every week, the ratings were going up. And you could just start to sense that kind of people were, were talking about the Ultimate Fighter. This thing was on TV. And obviously it culminated with the finale of Forrest Griffin versus uh, Stefan Bonner, which was an epic fight, three rounds of just back and forth. And it was the first time a live UFC event had ever been on TV. And uh, after that uh, got over, um, the executive at Spike, uh, you know, kind of corralled us because they didn't have any rights to the UFC. They didn't have a, a deal for season two. They didn't have an option. They didn't have anything because we paid for it. We put it on and it was just kind of like, you know, put it on TV. And um, in the back alley at the Cox Pavilion there, the Thomas and Mac at UNLV, we literally kind of decided, okay, we're gonna keep DVD rights. You guys are gonna buy, they said, we'll buy the next season, we'll pay you X. And you know, we just kind of went back and forth and all of a sudden we had a deal on the back of an envelope and walked away from there. And uh, we all went to dinner afterwards at the Hard Rock to kind of celebrate and we're like, I can't believe this is actually gonna happen. Like, We're actually gonna have a business that works. What's the high like coming out of something like that, you know, I can An remember it, it was a huge adren- adrenaline rush, and uh, we were just basically, you know, saying, "Look, everything we worked for, all the all the time, energy, effort, everything that's been put into this thing, is fine. This thing is finally going to work." We thought it could work, we felt it could work, but it actually was starting to work, and that was a cool
0: feeling. It seemed like just as you guys were seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with the UFC and everything was going so well, and it was on the path to profitability. Then the recession hits, which takes a huge toll on the other business. And I think it's like um, 2007. Uh, you guys, you know, buy back right. your uh, gaming business, so it's no longer public. 2009, uh, you know, you, you file for uh, bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. How did the recession impact the gaming business, and you know, how quickly did it happen?
1: You know, it really was an amazing roller coaster. You know, I, I was born and raised here in Las Vegas. I think the population has doubled in size every decade since 1950. So going back to 2007, we had just been on just this incredible trajectory. I mean, a couple of years were we maybe go like this, but Vegas was nowhere but up. I mean, it was just going, 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 going. And, uh, you know, the markets were hot. It, it, all, it all made sense, you know, based on historical uh, performance. And we decided to, to uh, buy out the, the public shareholders and take the company private and, and through an LBO. And uh, it was shortly thereafter, literally months, all of a sudden, the market started to get a little bit shaky, and um, then you started to see some of these big financial institutions who you never in your wildest dreams thought would have problems start to go down. And it was crazy, because it was literally almost to a T. It was like September, I remember, or sometime in early fall, that Lehman Brothers, that the government let Lehman Brothers go out of business. 2008, right? 2008. And it was like almost literally to the next day, our numbers were down like double digits in the casino. We're looking at going, oh, that's weird, because even in 2001, after 9/11, you know, we had like six weeks of or two or three months of bad numbers. And all of a sudden, things just rocketed right back up. It was no problem. So every day, we're looking at the numbers after that, going, okay, okay, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And, and it just never got better. In fact, it got worse. Uh, the recession hit Las Vegas probably as hard, if not harder than anywhere in the country. You know, housing prices um, dropped like 70%. You had the highest rate of, uh, of default on mortgages here in this city. Um, and uh, the, the whole town basically just imploded from a real estate standpoint, from a consumer standpoint. And here we are, <laughs> right on the on the uh, right after a a massive lbo that we just did so um it just the business wasn't working so ended up having to file bankruptcy and at the same time the ufc is still taking off right so the ufc didn't feel the effects for whatever reason i think as a lot of entertainment properties didn't you know movies still did really well and you know for the most part entertainment still did pretty well even through the recession so it's kind of crazy how things balance each other out. And,
0: and I know you said for two years, every Friday, you thought you were gonna lose the company, the the gaming business. Your brother told me that the hardest part of going through that was the possibility of losing the company that your father yeah. created. How did you cope with that
1: then? You know, it is it is an emotional thing. I mean, to hear, to think, you know, we got, you know, we had this opportunity, we took the keys, we built a company from one property into, you know, a big publicly traded corporation with multiple properties, and all of a sudden, here, it's, we're hanging by a thread. We could potentially lose this business that, that should be something that, you know, hopefully is, is in our family forever, and uh, it was in, incredibly stressful, it was incredibly stressful. Um, my brother did, and, and the team over there did an amazing job navigating through that process, you know, where every day talk about a new wrinkle man it was it was you didn't know what was going to happen at the beginning or the end of each day
0: your brother said you guys just relentlessly hit the gym every morning and that helped a lot in kind of coping with the the mental stress of that period how, how true is that
1: it's very true i mean you can go one way or the other you know some people you know they uh they let the stress get to them and they 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 end up um you know getting depressed or whatever it may be, and our kind of saving grace is that uh, we just got up every morning and trained like animals and got everything out of our mind, and it's kind of strange how that works. You know, you go in, you end up the day depressed, you wake up the next morning, you get a little spunky energy, you get in a great workout, and you're mentally sharp, and you're ready to go, you know, deal with whatever faces you that day, and we still do that to this day. What was the
0: toughest day during that period, and why do you think you guys were able to ultimately survive?
1: I think the toughest day was, when you, when it really set in to say we're going to file bankruptcy. I mean, I, we never wanted to be associated with with any company or have that stigma attached to that. Um, and just coming to the realization that that was just the world that we lived in at that time. I mean, there were companies filing bankruptcy left and right. It, it, the company was in a position where that was the only way to to save it at the end of the day. And um, you know, like I said before, I mean, once we got past that, then it was about just digging in and uh, working with the creditors to try to find a solution that worked for everybody. So
0: the the UFC today and long-term, um, you've said that you'd really like to turn the company long-term into one more like a Discovery
1: Communications. Why? You know, when we started this thing, it was about, you know, being fan fight fans and boy, it'd be cool to kind of be a fight promoter and, and you know, just be fun. And then all of a sudden it turned into, you know, is there really an opportunity to do something that nobody has done before? And what I mean by that is if you look at boxing for instance, you know, combat sports, it's the only industry I could think of that over the last 100 years or however long it's been around has generated billions. I mean literally billions of dollars some of the biggest events ever. Yet there's no brand associated with with boxing. There's no business really with boxing. There's no company you can say, "Okay, we're going to project out their earnings for the next 10 years and" do a DCF on it and value it or, or there's just not, not really anything there. So he said, is there an opportunity to take combat sports and brand it like American football's branded with the NFL or basketball's branded with the NBA or obviously Major League Baseball, so on and so forth. That was the vision. So transforming from just being a fight promoter to really building a brand and a company and a business, but going beyond that, where we're taking the vision, is really be, building a media company, right? Because we're generating content, generating tons of content every day that we're selling on multiple platforms, whether it be free to air television, whether it be digital through the internet, whether it be on pay-per-view or whatever platform it might be, and then doing that in 149 countries around the world in 20 different languages, right? To take it a step further, what the vision is, is now we don't just want to be a content producer, but we want to be the distribution owner, right? So we've leveraged our position into owning a network, a channel in Brazil. Owning a, ch- uh, a network uh, through a joint venture with Televiso, um, which is the biggest media company in Latin America called the UFC Network. So we create the content, we distribute it, but then we also own the distribution platform. Hence, very similar to Discovery Communications, right? They generate all this content, you know, which was once wildlife, and now it's a lot of docu-soap reality type stuff and they own the network. They own networks around the world, some through joint ventures, some wholly owned. Uh, But in a lot of ways, as silly as it sounds, it's kind of parallel, right? Because the reason they've been successful on such a global basis is because the nature of their content translates very, very well. Mm -hmm. No matter what country you're from or what language you speak, you'll watch a lion run down a a gazelle. You'll watch a a, 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 sea life, something about sharks. Shark week, that translates everywhere. Same thing with us two two guys or two girls in in the octagon using any martial art they want to compete that translates all around the world so that's why i like to say you know kind of similar to what discovery has done is what we're doing uh in a different way through combat sports
0: so you and dana white you know high school friends who i I think ended up reconnecting like a, a decade after uh high school and then when you guys buy the ufc you charge him early on with basically uh, running the thing as this has grown have you
1: guys divided up the decision-making process you know it's it's kind of interesting it's not as much dividing up it's more collaboration okay um, you know at the end of the day I was always involved with the UFC um, I was running a public company so I couldn't you know be running around saying you know I'm doing all these different things. But I always kept in touch with Dana and, and he was running the day-to-day business. And what Dana has evolved into is literally the, the greatest fight promoter ever. I don't, you know, everybody talks about Don King, talk about Bob Arum. I don't think anybody has, has built and accomplished what, what Dana has. And he's taken on that role in such an, an amazing fashion. And, you know, um, he has the ability to really be out there, sell fights, understand what the consumer wants. I would say that Dana is is really the mastermind behind a lot of the creative as far as kind of how the UFC is, you know, we sell to the consumers and, and really what my role is is, uh, you know, more strategy, you know, day-to-day operations. I can't get Dana to sit in a meeting for more than 10 minutes, so somebody has to do it, you know, he's he's always off doing something else, but It ends up working out perfectly because we have very, very different um, approaches to business, very different personalities, yet it seems like it's like the perfect match, you know. Um, We balance each other out, and I think the biggest thing is just we collaborate so well, you know, we're best friends, we talk about everything, we don't argue or get in fights, you know, we may joke around with each other, rib each other a little bit here and there, but, you know, it's a fun process every day, and, you know, we come in and we love what we're doing, we have a great time doing it. I understand you guys have apparently
0: never had an argument. Um, and if that's true, what's the closest you guys have ever been to really getting into Yeah,
1: it? you know, we really haven't had an argument. I mean, its I think that's just out of mutual respect and the same thing with my brother. You know, we just, we all we all respect each other so much that there's really no time and place for, for arguing. So if you have an opinion, or you wanna go in a different direction, I respect your opinion so much that I'm gonna take that into account. And I think the biggest thing is there's no egos around here. Nobody cares that if somebody, you know, wants to do this or do that, or they made the right decision or they were right or you were wrong. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're all just trying to accomplish the same thing. And uh, of course, we have different opinions. And of course, we disagree, you know, here and there. But um, most of the time, it's just over, you know, stupid, silly things like we'll argue over who's going to win this fight coming up. Um, to what extent was there ever a
0: time where you started to question his ability?
1: You know what, I, don't, I never really questioned his ability. It was more a question for me of timing. You know, I, I thought Dana, at the time, people said was an un, unconventional hire, okay? But what they didn't understand is I had bought an unconventional business. Um, if I had gone out and bought the UFC and went out and hired a Harvard MBA, um, or some guy that ran a big corporation, we'd have been, we'd have been toast a long time ago. Um, Dana was the perfect fit because he had this, un- I don't care if he didn't go to college, I don't care if he wasn't a straight A student when he went to Bishop Gorman, he has what you can't teach, which is an incredible drive and an incredible amount of common sense and the ability to understand uh, people and understand the consumer, and and I saw that that he had that, um, and I truly to this day believe that if it wouldn't have been uh, me, Frank, had not hooked up with Dana, that we wouldn't be here today. Um, and it wasn't that I ever thought that that he wasn't the right person. It was was this the right time? Was the world ready for this product? Were we were we too out far ahead of front of ourselves? And sometimes that happens, you know, um, but. You know, we were able to hang on long enough to eventually figure it out and, and make it work. There's obviously a ton of desire now to work
0: at the UFC. <laughs> oh, how you know, times mm-hmm. have changed over the past right. 10, 15 years, right? Um, but you know, there's also, I understand, I mean, you guys are pretty demanding of the employees that work here, and some uh, you know, will burn out. How much um, you know, pressure do you think's on the employees here?
1: Well, I mean, I think there's pressure in, in every business. I think, look, at the end of the day, this is a high-paced business, you know, and it, it's for some people and it's not for others. And uh, it is demanding. It, it, it's basically that we have an attitude here. It's whatever it takes to get done. we got to get it done. And that kind of rose out of the early days when we, we didn't have a lot of people around helping us. and We were trying to pull these events off, and it meant you know, we had to go count T-shirts for merchandise. We'd go do it ourselves if we had to. I mean, whatever it took. And, and there, there was always that sense of the culture of this company is, once again, whatever it takes. So, you know, there's a lot of people here that sacrifice a lot of things. They're on an airplane a lot. They're flying to different countries. You know, they're, they're putting these events on, whether they're in production or operations or whatever it might be. But I think at the end of the day, um, uh, I think they, they love it too you know, the energy and, and the excitement and everything being a part of something that is essentially making history. You know, we're, we're changing the landscape of sport and media every day.
0: You said the minute you stop micromanaging is the minute you're unsuccessful. Why do you believe that?
1: I feel like that, um, you know, obviously, as your business starts, if you're an entrepreneur, it starts small, and then it grows over time. And of course, you have to figure out how to, uh, how to manage in a different way because all of a sudden when you were doing everything, you obviously can't do that. We were doing, I think, four or five fights a year, you know, and me and Dana would go to the event seven days early and we'd be in every production meeting and we'd be doing, you know, I mean, literally hands on with everything. Now all of a sudden we're doing forty six fights a year, right? And all the other things going. It's impossible. So do I sit in production meetings anymore? Not as much. Do I, you know, all these things. But what you have to do, I believe, is to be a successful entrepreneur is there's usually five or six, four or five, five or six things that have made you successful, the key things about your business. And I feel like that you need to always keep hold of those things. You have to understand what it is that's made you successful. So to this day, I still am involved in improving all the matches, you know, Um, so we'll have a weekly matchmaking meeting. I don't care how big this company gets, what we're doing always involved in the weekly matchmaking meetings to figure out what our product's going to be. Not a piece of advertising, like big advertising, whether it be a commercial for a pay-per-view, the graphics artwork for a a pay-per-view championship event, never gets out of the doors without either me or Dana uh, approving it. You know, obviously, I trust him to do anything, he trusts me to do anything. Um, Still to this day, we do rehearsals on the uh, Friday night and then Saturday afternoon before the event. I don't know how many thousands of events we've done, but to us, the product is so important, it's gotta be perfect. So, and it's not just about the guys competing, but it's about what does it feel like from a consumer standpoint when they come into the arena? What are we playing up on the screens? What music is being played? What's the decibel level of the music? How does it increase over the time during the period of the show? Because at the end of the day, we're really, what we're really selling here is energy. That's why people come to these shows. And obviously, what does it look like and does it translate to TV? So, you know, you can't do everything, but you should always keep your hands on some of the key things that if those get out of whack, then you're in trouble, right? We always got to make sure that that doesn't get out of whack, that our product is perfect. How has opening
0: the sport up to women
1: changed things in your mind? You know, I, I feel like that the, this is a seminal moment just in, in not just sports, but in, in culture altogether. The, this movement that is being led by Ronda Rousey, it, it's, it's a total, it's, it's female empowerment. I mean, who's to say, why, why can't a, a girl be a fighter? Why can't a girl be successful in sports like, like these other athletes in sports? I mean, who's to say that, why couldn't Ronda Rousey be the, the biggest, most popular, uh, uh, athlete in combat sports. And and that's her whole attitude, and that's why she's getting there. Right. And she's blazing the trail, and, and I think what's happening uh, for for females in sports, the, the most interesting story, the most important story in sports is the UFC, because we've embraced it. Uh, we don't treat them any differently. They headline big pay-per-view events. They get paid the pay-per-view points when they're champions, no different than the guys do. Um, Ronda Rousey's whole life has been transformed from being you know an ex-Olympic athlete, the first woman to ever win a medal in Judo in the Olympics and finding herself literally living out of her car because that's just what you know it's kind of what's the outlet after the Olympics for, for somebody that's a wrestler or a judo player, or whatever right. it might be. And here we come with the opportunity to, to be on a worldwide stage. And um, she, she has been probably she has been the most impressive athlete we've ever worked with. Really, Here at the UFC. I mean, I put her right up there with the the best of the best, not just for what she can do in the octagon, but the way she handles herself outside the octagon, Um, the way she kind of manages her own discipline and the way she trains and she balances that with now she's a, a worldwide movie star, you know, with these big, big roles that she does and she just, she doesn't miss a beat at all.
0: How do you compare the dangers of the UFC to those of the NFL?
1: You know it's listen at the end of the day it's a contact sport i mean we can't sit here and say hey you know there's not going to be this or that i mean there are injuries in the ufc um you know majority of those injuries though are you know soft tissue injuries cuts broken hands knees get tweaked you know things like that um the nfl Though, you know, it, it, that's obviously a contact sport as well, and uh, they're having to deal with a lot of the same things, obviously, the biggest of, of which is, is the concussion issue. Right. And I think part of the, the the difference here is that in the UFC, there's no there's no urgency to play. There's no, if you, if you happen to, to fight and compete, and let's say the doctor says, okay, you have a concussion, you're automatically suspended for 90 days. No contact in the gym, obviously you can't compete, you can't fight. So we're, we're regulated by these various athletic commissions and doctors that are making sure that the athletes are getting enough time to heal the right way. So unfortunately, sometimes in, in competitive team sports, whatever it might be, could be basketball, NFL, whatever, there's always that, that uh, um, competitive push and desire to say, hey, we need this person to play this Sunday or need this person to play this weekend because we wanna win, and I think that's what they're having to figure out how to balance and obviously they're doing a better a much better job at it. But I think that's where the difference lies is that, you know, it's a singular sport. It's not a team sport. You're not relying on one person for the rest of your team. It's just it's a different animal that we're deal with. I was talking to somebody
0: about this the other day and their kind of argument to what what the UFC said on that to date has been, well yeah, you know, they're saying all the right things now, but it's easy to say now when the league's still young before there's that long period of time where research can be done. How do you respond to that?
1: You know, the, at the end of the day, we've embraced all of that. I mean, we're, we're not running away from it. We're not hiding it. We're total disclosure. I mean, yes, you could get a concussion if you're in the UFC, but what we've done is we've actually partnered with um, the Lou Rovo Brain Center here and the Cleveland Clinic. The Brain Center here in Las Vegas in association with the Cleveland Clinic and are funding um, brain studies, and putting our athletes through these studies so that they can um, have the best resources, make sure they in- get a baseline for where they're at so they can compare over time, has there been any changes? We're trying to see, you know, is there things such that are some some people just more disposed to uh, brain injury than others? So we're funding a lot of this research, um, being completely transparent with our athletes, and, and trying to make them understand that, yes, there certainly are risks going into this thing, but. When you do fight for us, you're going to make. Su- we're going to make sure you have all the the best medical testing to make sure that you go into the octagon um, safely, and you're going to have the best medical staff there on site, and best referees and officials as well. And one of the be- one of the most important safety things that we can do is make sure that we put on competitive fights, meaning evenly matched fights. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times what you see in, in for instance, boxing, is there's a bit of a uh, culture there that you have to build your record up to thirty and zero before you you get a title shot. Well, along that line of 30 and O's, you probably knocked out a few guys that probably weren't in your league and shouldn't have been in there with you. When you get in the UFC, you know, you see guys will say, you know, Chuck Liddell is the greatest of all time. Well, how can that be? He's got seven losses or eight losses. You know, how's that even possible? Well, the difference in the UFC is the best fight, the best. And when you're evenly matched with somebody, you're going to have a lot less risk of something bad happening.
0: Fighter pay and then comments about UFC potentially being a monopoly. and but before I-, I ask that, I just wonder if generally, uh, you know some of those criticisms irritate you because y- you guys are the ones that, you know built the UFC basically from nothing that were, you know, $44 million in the hole and kept it going and turned the thing around and made multi-millionaires out of fighters who were otherwise right. earning, you know, hundreds or, right. you know, barely thousands of dollars. To, to, to what extent does that, you know, some of the criticism get you to know, you at all?
1: It could get under your skin a little bit, you know, when you, when you think about uh, the opportunities that we've afforded uh, athletes and, and what whatnot. Um, from a fighter pay standpoint, I'm proud of what we pay fighters. You know, I, I can remember uh, when we first bought the company. I was like, you know, Dana, you know what my dream is? You know, Dana and Frank, I can't wait till we can pay a fighter a million dollars to fight. That—that's what I wanted to do. I want to pay them as much as we possibly can. That's a sign of success. Um, that means that things are working. That things are going well. And at the end of the day, are you are you gonna make everybody happy? No, I, I guarantee you, there's not a company on this planet where every single person in the company is happy with what their pay is. I mean, sure. it's just not gonna be the way. But the reality is, is the UFC is the ultimate, uh, you know, place of capitalism. And you 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 earn if you're successful. If you're a fighter and you become champion and you're successful and you're the guy or the girl that's bringing the people to come watch the show and that are buying the pay-per-views, you're gonna make. The, the the last conversation we're going to have is about money, mm-hmm. and you don't see those those guys and girls, and we all know who we're talking about the, the top earners complain about their money. It's the ones that are you know somehow never made it or, mm-hmm. or maybe were, you know three and four and, and and you know just never got to that spot. But to earn the millions, you got you got to get to the top, and it's and it's you know different than if you decide to be a professional golfer, you could be on the tour. For a long time, if you're not successful, you're not going to be a millionaire. You're going to have a lot of long nights and you know, in uh, hotel rooms. You probably didn't want to be in. But if you're successful, you're going to make millions. You're going to get sponsorships, and you're going to become a superstar.
0: There have been some fighters who said they believe that the fighters get 10% of the UFC's profits. You said it's you know it's somewhere around 50%. Uh, yeah. I guess in fairness to them UFC's a private company and right. you know they don't really know because you guys don't have to open your books but well, we, we do to them what, we
1: do to them they all of our fighters have audit rights they can come in and check the pay per views and see how many you know revenue was made and all that other stuff so
0: what, what percent do you think's fair
1: Listen I think that it is look I'm a big believer in the, in the capital markets and the open market and you know we sit down and negotiate with every one of these uh, athletes and their managers and if we can come to a deal, then we come to a deal at the end of the day. Nobody's forcing anybody to fight. Nobody's forced. Nobody told any one of these individuals, hey, you know, this is what you should do for your for your life or for your right. career or what you want. To, this is their dream. And we sit down and, you know, we negotiate. And uh, like I said, for the most part, I think fighters are happy. Do they want to make more money? I mean, everybody wants to make more money. I guarantee you, you know, Tom Brady makes 18 million a year. If he said, would you like 40? he would say, yeah, that'd be great.
0: Uh, all right, so here's one of the monopoly uh, mm-hmm. arguments that the UFC is basically the only league and the only team. And, you know, you look at like American football with the NFL, they're the <laughs> league, or baseball, Major League Baseball's the league. But then there are all these teams that make up the leagues that mm-hmm. vie for, you know, players to compete for them through free agency, which, you know, inherently increases a player's value or earning power because. That they have more leverage in the UFC, the UFC's the league and really the only team which creates you know the, or which you know affords the UFC the leverage when it comes to negotiation so that that's kind of sure, the, no. one of the arguments what I get do you that think?
1: Listen, I, I think that's a silly argument because at the end of the day, um, there are professional uh, there there are events being promoted every weekend. Uh, all around the world. I mean, literally thousands of them under different different promotional promotions. Um, is it our fault that we just did a better job and branded this thing and became the most successful? No, you know, we, we've taken that mantle and that's fine. Um, at the end of the day though, there are no barriers to entry. You know, if somebody wants to go start a business and compete with us, they, all they have to do is go down to the athletic commission and get a license and. Go get a venue, and you know, put up some money and start promoting fights. And it's happened many times. I mean, you know, Donald Trump was in the business. Mark Cuban was in the business. Um, there's been a number of people that have been in the business with significantly more resources than we have. And most recently, you know, Viacom owns Bellator, mm-hmm. which is, you know, as some people say, the number two uh, promotion in the business. I can tell you, Viacom has way more resources than we ever dreamed of. Sure. And um, but at
0: the same time, it can be like. You know, another football league starting to compete against we're, we're, the NFL, you know what? given how we, big the UFC is. Now. We
1: ha- we have first mover advantage. That's what we have. We have first mover advantage. No question about it. But with that said, you know they're a viable competitor. They're out there, and listen, we've we've been on fighters between each other many different times, and you know obviously um, it's a free market, and we can bid them up, and fighters can decide where they wanna where they wanna be. How do you work to continue to prevent drug usage? First of all, we have uh, completely embraced uh, drug testing. I think the biggest thing is, is out-of-market, out-of-competition testing. is probably the most important thing. Uh, we have supported the, uh, the various athletic commissions, uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission, whatnot, in any time they have ever come to us and said, we want to do out-of-market testing or for any of our athletes. Uh, we've said yes, and we've actually funded those tests because obviously a lot of times the states don't have the funds to be able to deal with that, so we fund that. We encourage it. We're continuing to work with various different drug testing groups to try to put in uh, stricter policies, uh, more random drug testing, and you know we actually encourage the athletic commissions. Whereas before they were kind of randomly picking certain fighters on each card, we're like test everybody. So we're we're embracing testing. We're embracing the um, you know longer um, penalties for athletes that test positive, because ultimately that that's the only way you're gonna. Hopefully, you know, get rid the sport of of of, uh, performance enhancing drugs, and and it's not just us. I mean, every sport, you know, obviously is is facing this issue and dealing with this issue. Um, But we feel good about the fact that we actually have a third party, which is the government or the state governments at times, or you know, federations worldwide that are doing the testing. So.
0: And the athletes should want it if they know it's going to be a level playing field for everybody.
1: I think it is. I think it is. That is. I mean, obviously, when I tell. Fighters, this is what we're gonna do, we're testing, we're out, out of competition testing. I mean, to a T, they all say that's fantastic, that's great, and I, and I hope that's the case, because if you are a clean athlete, you obviously, you want that. You were
0: captain of your uh, high school football team at Bishop Gorman High School, which isn't too far from here. Uh, your brother Frank told me he really believes you learned a lot of life lessons out on that football field. What do you think of that?
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, I obviously love football. I love my time playing high school football, but you do. I mean, all, there's a lot of things you learn on that field um, that translates, you know, to later in life. At least it did for me, you know, whether it be, you know, the obvious hard work, um, you know, uh, leadership, you know, struggles, having to dig in and struggle, teamwork, accountability, all of those things. I mean, football is such a great sport because in order to be successful, you know, you have 11 guys on the field at any one given time. And. Every single one of those those guys has to do their job. If one guy messes up, that could be the end of the play or the end of the game or whatever it might be. no different than here, you know, we have, we have people that work here and everybody's got to be accountable. They have to do, you know, take direction, do what they're supposed to do and execute, and that'll make us successful. So there's a lot of correlation, obviously, between sports and, and, and life and business and just in general. And you're a
0: big donor to the school and the football program, which is the number one high school football program in the country right now. Um, the, the field has your family's name on it. What about the school means so much to you?
1: You know, I think it obviously all started with my dad. You know, my dad was always a big supporter of Bishop Gorman's, the only Catholic high school uh, in Las Vegas, my dad being a, a Roman Catholic and us being raised that way, you know, always had an, a, a strong affinity to it. You know, my sister went there my brother went there. I went there, played football there. All of our nieces and nephews went there. Obviously Frank's uh, kids went there. My two sons, um, actually my son has graduated. I have one son there now and I have a daughter that'll be going there next year. So it's just kind of part of, part of our family and we felt very strongly that, first of all, we care a lot about Las Vegas. You know, we're, we're very proud to be born and raised here and care a lot about the community and have always wanted to and try to do things to give back. And, and one of the things we think that is what makes Las Vegas better is having a great high school like Bishop Borman, having great facilities to have, have the kids have the ability to go through that experience both academically and also from an athletic standpoint. I mean, the ability to be associated with, you know, a great top 25 basketball team every year, our our baseball team that's won the national championship a couple times, and now our football team, which is ranked number one in the country. We think that's additive to our community.
0: That's it for my chat with Lorenzo Fertitta. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to see our tour of the old UFC headquarters and a surprise visit with Dana White. And as always, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.